we are continuing in a series uh, that we're doing in Ephesians chapter 6. Last week, Sam preached on the couple of verses before this. This week, we're considering verses 14 through 17, talking about the full armor of God. It's a really timely message. Lately, there have been people in our orbit, in our diocese, including our bishop, uh, along with some clergy and lay people, who have started a time of of gathering and discernment, um, believing that this church, and indeed our our whole area network here of churches, are under a appointed or an elevated amount of spiritual attack. And that may very well be true. And I would encourage you in your daily prayers to pray for the health of this church and our churches and all of its people. Now, we've been looking at Paul telling the Ephesians that they need to put on the whole armor of God because they are part of a spiritual battle against the legitimately evil forces in this world. And it may be worth noting in this time that Paul doesn't say to people to put on the armor of God when they feel like they are under spiritual attack. Paul simply says to put it on as part of the Christian life because the forces of evil that wage war against God and against his church are always present even if they are not always acutely felt. In fact, sometimes they're most dangerous when they aren't being felt or noticed, but they are always there. If you are following Christ, you have a bullseye on your back, so suit up. That's basically what Paul is saying. At this point in the passage, Paul starts listing each item in this armor of God. So these seem to be important, and so I think it's good that we look at them individually, and then we'll talk about how this whole outfit looks together. The first thing that Paul mentions is the belt of truth. It's, it's the first thing, it's the foundational item on which everything else is based. Now, at that time, people didn't really wear pants, so don't think of a belt as something that would hold your trousers up, because at that time, the, the common dress would have been a long robe or a tunic. So when you put on a belt like this, if you're working or running or doing something active, like fighting, you'd put on a belt and then you'd gather up the kind of leggy parts of your robe and you'd tuck them into this belt. That way you'd be prepared for work or prepared to fight. If you're not wearing a belt and go into battle, you can have whatever fancy shield or helmet you want, but it's not going to do you much good because you're going to be tripping over your robe and you're going to fall. So the foundational item in this armor of God is a belt of truth. Everything else comes after that. So what is truth? What does that mean? God is true. His love is true, his justice is true, and his word is true. Our faith is not based on feelings or some subjective, utilitarian notion of what works for me. Our faith is based on truth. God really created the world. Jesus really is God and man at the same time. People really are sinful and in need of redemption. And Jesus really did die, and he really was resurrected. Everything else that we do is based on those truths. If those things aren't true, then Paul was right when he said that Christians were to be pitied above everybody else, since we're basically basing our whole lives on a lie. But if it is true, then it is essential, just like this belt of truth. And when we claim that truth, we start to be properly outfitted for this spiritual battle. Next, Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Paul is basically quoting from Isaiah 59 here, which we just heard read out. In it, God is is looking around at his chosen people and he sees that there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one deals justly with one another. No one is honest with one another. 
Isaiah says that God's own people grope like a wall, grope along a wall like the blind. He says that we stumble around at noon as if it were twilight. We look like the dead among those who are healthy. And so, not finding anyone who is righteous, God himself decides to bring justice to the earth. God himself promises redemption. And, and so Isaiah starts to paint this picture of what the Redeemer will look like gearing up for the fight. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation for his head. So in the Isaiah passage, it's God himself who is putting on this armor as the Redeemer. God the Son, Jesus. But in our Ephesians passage, Paul is telling us to put on this armor. You might ask, isn't that kind of Jesus' stuff? Like, seems to be his job. Shouldn't we leave it to him? But as followers of Christ, we are apprentices of Christ. We follow the pattern that he has showed us how to live, and then we do that as well. Christ has chosen his church to be the means by which he spreads his kingdom on earth. And so Paul here is using a military metaphor. But if you back up a couple of verses, you remember that Paul says that we are fighting a spiritual battle. The conflicts that we have with, with one another, with other people, the conflicts that we have with a world that is genuinely hostile to the gospel, those things are nothing. They pale in comparison to the very real but invisible conflict that is going on all around us. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Our struggle is not against other humans. Our struggle is against the spiritual powers of darkness who for a while have been given authority to rule and to work in our world. Let me be perfectly clear. Paul is talking about Satan and Paul is talking about his demons. And I say this as a pastor who's not particularly drawn to conversations about spiritual warfare. I'd much rather talk about the, the severity of sin and the depth of brokenness and the incalculable weight of God's grace to sinners. But we cannot read the Bible truthfully and deny that this cosmic spiritual battle is real and it is present. So, breastplate of righteousness. Jesus wore it. And Jesus gives it to us. This is basically straight out of 2 Corinthians 5.21, what theologians call the great exchange. For our, sake, he for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus who knew no sin became sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's salvation. Because what our triune God did in the work of redemption through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ... Jesus not only took all of our sin upon himself, but he gave to us his righteousness. So this breastplate that Paul calls us to put on, that belongs to Jesus. That is Christ's righteousness. He gives it to us. And as Sam said last week, we are clothed with Christ when we have this breastplate because Christ is sufficient to stand up to any evil. Next, Paul pivots. He looks at the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, which is a bit of a mouthful. As, as bindings, or, or as sandals, or as boots, or as shoes, you have the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what it says. What does that mean? Well, remember how, for the, the one before it, Paul borrowed a phrase from Isaiah 59 about the breastplate of righteousness. Well, here, Paul's drawing on Isaiah 52, verse 7. Maybe you've heard this verse before. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. Remember, that's the same word as gospel. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of happiness, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
That's what Paul is talking about here. These shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. What do we use shoes for? We use them for walking, for running, for going somewhere. And we're ready to run because we've already tucked our robes up into the belt of truth. And you know who needs really good shoes? Messengers, heralds. The guy who ran 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens to proclaim the news that the battle is won and the king is victorious. The shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. These shoes that Paul is telling us to put on as as part of the full armor of God is actually our readiness to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. It's odd to think that our willingness to follow the Great Commission and to tell others about the risen king is in itself a defense against the dark forces of spiritual evil. In this case, the best defense is a good offense. Look at the next one with me. The shield of faith. The shield of faith which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, which is a great image. Flaming arrows that are shot against us. Again, one of the reasons that Paul is a great writer is that he draws on great source material. Now this time it's not Isaiah. It's Psalm 120, verses 3 and 4. The the psalmist talks about hating liars and lies. And he says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. The psalmist is saying, the best cure for a lying tongue is to shoot flaming arrows through it. So, turn that around, like Paul does here. If the devil is coming at us with If the devil is coming at us with the flaming arrows that he brings, which themselves are lies, since the devil is a liar and the father of lies, then what can we use? What can we use to to extinguish those lies that are coming from the evil one? This shield, a shield of faith, a shield of belief in God and in his promises. The evil one comes at us with lies. You aren't good enough. Sin isn't that big of a deal. You are unlovable everyone's doing it, you'd better be good or God won't love you, right and wrong or just social constructs, and every single one of those sounds like the original lie from the evil one, from the Garden of Eden, when the serpent said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? When the flaming arrows of Satan's lies come at us, how do we put those out? We put them out with faith, with belief in God and his promises. One more thing to help you visualize this protection that we get from the shield of faith. When when Paul talks about a shield, he's not talking about one of those dinner plate Captain America shields that you wear on your arm. These are basically full body shields used by a Roman phalanx. They were almost as big as as a man or at least a man crouching. Put that shield in front of you when you were attacked with flaming arrows covered in pitch and you were protected. You are covered. No matter where the archer tries to strike you with his arrows, you are safe. It's another thing to remember when we think about this Christian life that we live and this battle that we're engaged in. The metaphors that Paul is using here are basically Roman army metaphors. And there are no lone actors in the Roman army. The whole thing, the whole Roman military strategy was built on the coordinated movements of many different soldiers acting as one. Their strength came in unity not in being a bunch of lone wanderers. So this is important to remember. When Paul is writing his letters, he is talking to the church. He's not talking to a Christian. In English, the word for you or you is is both you. But think of it this way. In Greek, Paul is saying, y'all put on your belt of truth. 
Y'all take up the shield of faith. This battle is not something that we are meant to fight alone. And so when each of us has our shield of faith and we put them together, we create this impenetrable barrier of unity in the belief in God. Next is the helmet of salvation. This is another piece of the king's armor that, I, that Isaiah was talking about in, in Isaiah chapter 59. And this is another one of those cases where God just gives something to us. He gives his own helmet to us for our protection. The helmet is among the oldest kinds of armor, and it makes sense. Four out of our five senses are kept in our head along with our brains. And so if you're only going to protect one area of your body, the, helmet's, the head is a really good choice. And so the helmet is a really good object of armor. Helmets have been discovered as far back as, as uh, 20,000 BC. And so what's the thing that covers this most important and, mo and yet also most vulnerable part of our bodies? Salvation itself. Our redeemed identity as sons and daughters of God. Taking our sin on him and giving us his righteousness. And uniting us together in his love. Redemption won by Jesus. This is what protects our head. This is the helmet of salvation. Four out of the five things that Paul is talking about here are defensive. They are designed to protect us. One is offensive. Designed for us to use to attack the last one. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you're thinking about all this and you believe that the cosmic battle of the forces of evil are real, you might think, how on earth am I supposed to fight a demon? How am I supposed to stand up to the forces of darkness? How am I supposed to battle against Satan himself? Maybe I should do what we clearly see Jesus doing. When Jesus himself was confronted by Satan in person, he didn't use miracles and he didn't use might. And he didn't run away. He used God's word. He used God's word to defeat Satan at his own game. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness three times. The devil tried to get Jesus. Three times Jesus quoted scripture back to him, using God's word as a sword to pierce Satan's arguments. God's word truly is a comfort in our time of need. And God's word is a light to our path. But, or and, God's word is also the only tool that we need in the fight against the spiritual foes of God's people. In Isaiah chapter 11, and then three times in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 19, we see this absolutely crazy image of the Messiah, the conquering king in full power and glory, and he has a double-edged sword coming straight out of his mouth. It's a, it's a jarring image. But it all ties together. Paul tells us to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is the sword fueled by the breath coming out of God's mouth, which is the Holy Spirit. The word for spirit and the word for breath in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek is the same thing. God's Word is the product of the Spirit of God, the, the breath of God. And Hebrews 4 tells us that God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it better be good, because according to Paul, it's the only thing that we have for offense. But fortunately, it is all that we need. I want to offer one final thought about this armor of God. Because when we, are, when we come to the end of Paul's exhortation, and we've done all these things, and we're fully kitted out in the armor of God, what do we look like? Sam last week preached the previous passage to this one, and he said that from a spiritual sense, without the armor of God, we are naked. We got nothing. 
And that is true in a, in a cosmic or a spiritual sense. But on a horizontal plane, with these specific armor components, with all of this armor of God, how do we look to outsiders? How do we look to the rest of the world? I want to bring up an Old Testament story that most of you have probably heard. The story of David and Goliath. Goliath, the hulking champion of the Philistines, calling out the Israelites, saying that they're too scared to fight him in one-on-one -on -one combat. And, and so David, a youth, the youngest of his brothers, says, I'll fight him. And people thought he was crazy. And King Saul said to him, you can't fight him, you're a kid. And he's been a man of war since he was a kid. And David says he's going to do it. And here's what I want to key into. David says he's going to go fight this giant. And so Saul, King Saul, puts David in an armor, his own armor, an armor made of bronze. The king's armor, this would have looked excellent to anyone around him. But Saul was a head taller than the other Israelites, and David was still young. So David was like a little kid wearing his dad's clothes. He put on this armor, and he couldn't move in it. He couldn't do battle in it. It didn't fit him, and so it wasn't going to protect him. So he took it off because he said that he was clothed in the power of the Lord. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, Goliath, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel. From a cosmic view, from a heavenly view, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith these are the only things that we have to protect us. But from the world's view, you can't see a belt of truth. You can't see a helmet of salvation. From everyone else's point of view, David looked weak and foolish going up against Goliath. But he knew that he was clothed in the protection of God. From the world's view, Jesus looked weak and foolish. Our strength as Christians is in weakness. The power of God looks like foolishness to the world. We say that we are armed in a, for a spiritual battle, the most important battle that we're ever going to face in this life. But to the rest of the world, it looks like we've got nothing on. It looks like we're not ready. Because our strength is in weakness. With the truth, however, armed with that truth, belted with that truth, covered with Christ's righteousness, Shoe, uh, have, having the gospel being ready to proclaim it, having the shield of faith in our hands and having salvation covering our heads and standing shoulder to shoulder in unity together, we truly can resist the schemes of the devil. It was true when Paul wrote this. It is true today. Let's pray. Father, take these words, press them down into our heart. Remind us that we are, that we do battle against Satan and his minions. But also remind us that, that the outcome of that battle has already been declared. That we know who's going to win. And that we are covered with Christ's saving righteousness, grace, peace, and faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.